Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features extraordinary people who do special things to enrich our lives and people who have overcome major challenges and adversities in their lives to come out on top. My guest today is Denise Basardi. She is a novelist, poet, award-winning photographer, and artist. Denise holds a BA in chemistry, an MS in computer science, and a PhD in developmental neuroscience. Denise is also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. She is the author of Thriving After Sexual Abuse, Break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love, which is a self-help book written to help survivors of abuse have a resource to start their journey of healing. Now the facts are staggering. There are more than 42 million survivors of sexual abuse in America. One in three girls are sexually abused by the age of 18. One in five boys are sexually abused by the same, at the same age, 18. 30% of sexual abuse is never reported. 90% of child sexual abuse victims know the perpetrator in some way. There are nearly half a million sex offenders in the United States. 80 to 100,000 of them are missing. A typical pedophile will commit 117 sexual crimes in a lifetime. Denise spent her adulthood healing herself from the traumatic impact the sexual abuse had on her life. She is not a mental health professional. She is a thriver who has traveled a healing journey and is able to be with us today to share her experience to help others in their own journey to healing to become thrivers. Welcome, Denise, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Denise, I'd like to start out... Uh, Please describe uh, what the relationship was like with your grandfather and how did that toxic relationship impact you uh, during your childhood and while you were growing up? So it was obviously a very tough and challenging relationship. I was really terrified of him because of what was happening. Um, I just knew that he was a very dangerous person. You would not counter him in any way or you would have to suffer the consequences and so I just always was afraid of him. I was afraid of being alone in the same room with him. I didn't want to sit next to him at the family functions. And I wasn't really consciously aware of why. You know, when you're that young, your brain hasn't developed. You can't really understand what's happening. And in fact, I think my brain tried to protect me by keeping me from really understanding what was going on until much later. And so I would have to deal with this uncertainty and, and these weird feelings about him when you're supposed to want to run up to your grandparents and hug and kiss and love. Sure. And I knew that he was not that type of person. And it really impacted the dynamics I had with, with him. We would go to spend summers at my grandparents' house and it would be all the cousins would be there and we'd be on the lake swimming and boating and fishing, all that good stuff. But then there was also this other stuff happening. Yeah. And so it was something I never shared when I was, was young. I, I just really was too afraid and too ashamed to share. He never threatened me explicitly, but again, intuitively, I knew not to, to let him be revealed <laughs> by through what I would say or do. Right. And right. so from the outside, it, we looked like a normal family. And I at first was probably looking like a normal kid except that all this stuff was going on inside that I wasn't sharing. And that just continued until he died when I was a freshman in high school. And that's when I actually started remembering things and understanding what had happened. And it was just 
at that point overwhelmed with all of that and just threw myself into school as a way to escape. Did your grandfather, uh, to your knowledge, abuse any other members of your family? I did confirm an older cousin was abused and he most likely went after the generation before us, his children. Uh, I do know that my aunt was abused as well. And so there was a certain personality type that he kind of was drawn to yeah. that was outgoing, intelligent, creative, curious. And there was something about that personality type that he just went after. And I just envisioned him like having this hole in his soul. And he was trying to grab onto this type of person to fill that empty space, but he didn't know how to really love in a healthy way. I, I assume he was probably abused himself. So he was carrying on something that happened to him, but he definitely did abuse multiple people in our family. Did you choose and why uh, to keep family members in your life, despite the fact that they may have been or were aware that the abuse was going on? I did. And it was an, a conscious decision that I made. So you know, there was my grandmother, there were my parents, there were other family members that potentially could have known about it. And as part of my healing journey, I sat down and, and had to ask myself, do I want these people in my life? I kind of moved beyond, did they know it was happening? Should they have known? Should they have stopped it? I processed through all of that and just said, well, I can either live in the past wondering about what happened in the past, or I can just face forward focus on the future and make a decision. And for me personally, I decided I wanted all of those people in my life. My grandfather was dead, so I didn't have to make any decision about him. And yeah. so it kind of cleared the, the space in the family where we could move forward without the abuse being kind of in the, the family situation ongoing. And I am very happy I made those choices because my parents are my best friends. My grandmother, I, I learned to know her in a way outside of his shadow that I would have never known and seen what a wonderful woman she was. So it was worth it to me, but I think that's really something every survivor needs to make their own choices about who remains and who they just can't have in their life anymore. Right. Let's shift to your healing journey. Uh, what convinced you to start the journey and why uh, did you start when you did? So I did not start until I was into college. So I mentioned that my grandfather was abusing me until I was a freshman in high school when he died. And then I just couldn't handle and process that other than just to try to forget it by delving into all kinds of activities and, and scholastics at school. But when I first started dating a graduate student in college, he was a recovering alcoholic and went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so he was like, you need to start to try to get some help because I did share with him what had happened to me. And so he encouraged me to, to go to the counseling center at the college and get some help there. I found an individual therapist who got me into a women's group, which was amazing to be around women who had gone yeah. through what I'd gone through. And because he had known about the Alcoholics Anonymous, we found an equivalent that was Survivors of Incest Anonymous. And I joined that group and it was outside of the school. It was just a regular group. And so there were people of all ages, there were men and women. And that was incredible because for the first time I realized that men could be survivors as well. And it just kind of shifted things for me. So it was really with the support of someone I was dating. And I think it was at the right time. I was away from my family. I was at college. I was being independent. And I was really wanting to try to, to shift some behaviors that I saw in myself. And this was the first step 
or first few steps I could take to try to start the healing journey. Tell us why this topic is so hard for people who have been abused, uh, be it sexually, physically, verbally, to talk about it in our society. I think it's getting a little easier with the Me Too movement and some recognition of how prevalent it is and how many people are impacted, but there's still this real deep, almost in your DNA shame for people that have gone through this, whether it's assault or some kind of incest, some kind of abuse. It's just, we internalize that shame and take the blame on ourselves. Even if someone has never told us that, somehow we rationalize that it was our fault and we're afraid to share it because we're just so ashamed of what happened and we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of people blaming us or rejecting us or telling us it didn't happen. And so there's a lot of fear and shame that is keeping people from speaking up. And unfortunately, if you, you can't speak up in some way, that may be just to yourself in a journal. If you can't admit that it happened, you can't heal from that. Yeah, yeah. Tell us how abused people uh, compartmentalize the experience and talk about having uh, a repressed memory. Sure, and, and I think that for some people this may seem controversial, but from my perspective, it's not controversial at all. I experienced repressed memories and I'm a scientist, I'm a neuroscientist by training. And so to me, I understand that, that this could be legitimate from a scientific perspective as, as well. We've seen that with a lot of studies with uh, survivors of trauma, whether it's PTSD from uh, war or other types of traumatic experiences. I want to take a few moments out of the podcast to mention that the podcast was fortunate to have on a previous episode Debbie Montgomery Johnson. Debbie told us of how she was scammed out of over $1 million by a person making up a fake profile and pretending to be someone he wasn't on an online dating site. Debbie has overcome that life challenge and now hosts her own show, the Stand Up and Speak Up Showcase Series, a show about each and every one of us. Many of us have something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, uh, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, something that we keep hidden and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and from the world. Her show features ordinary people who have been through extraordinary struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak about their experiences and the lessons learned. The show is seen on Debbie's YouTube channel every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and you can subscribe to it, which will allow you to view the replay on Debbie's website, The Woman Behind the Smile. Debbie's book, The Woman Behind the Smile, Triumph Over the Ultimate Online Dating Betrayal, and other books Debbie has been a contributor author to are available on the website, The Woman Behind the Smile. I believe you will find her show and her books well worth the read and the listen. Debbie also owns her own company, Benfo Complete, that sells Benfotiamine, a vitamin B1 super supplement manufactured in the United States. Benfotiamine is a special synthetic fat-soluble form of vitamin B1. Benfotiamine is highly effective at increasing measurable levels of vitamin B1. In, the, in this form, it can be taken orally, allowing the right amount of vitamin B1 into your bloodstream to support your nervous system. Diabetics use this for neuropathic pain and numbness in their hands, feet, and fingertips to relieve the numbness and pain. 
Diabetics are less likely to absorb thiamine. One study found that they have about 70% less thiamine than the average person. Check out all of Debbie's products at www.benfocomplete.com. Use the code STANDUP and you will receive a 5% discount. All the website information pertaining to Debbie's show and product line will be listed in the podcast notes. That translates over to what happens when you're assaulted or abused because you're surviving a trauma. And so there's a corollary experience there. And for me, it was, again, I think that my mind was trying to protect me and keeping me from understanding what was happening because I just wasn't safe to remember. And there's just, like I said, this um, mesh of, and mess of fear and shame and, and confusion. And when he died, I think my brain was like, aha, it's safe. You know, the threat is no longer there and it's yeah. safe. But some people, it takes them a long time. They, they may not realize uh, consciously that something happened until they have their own children and they see their kids at the age that they were when they were first abused. There's all kinds of triggers that can kind of cause an awakening to your experience. Maybe you learn of someone else that's close to you was abused and that all of a sudden is triggering for you. So there's no uh, commonality around when do you remember and and how do you remember, but definitely it's things that I've talked to a lot of survivors that I just didn't really realize. I knew I had things happening in my life that just didn't seem like uh, I could move forward, that I could get good relationships. There's all the impact of the abuse, but they weren't consciously aware of it until something triggered that uh, response and that memory to come forward. Denise, how hard is it for people on the healing journey to find resources since taking that first step is monumental and most are overwhelmed, I am, I'm sure? That's a great question. Yeah, I think it's, it is challenging because... <clears throat> As you said, that first step is huge to to make that acknowledgement and reach out for help. And I certainly encourage everyone to try to find some kind of help through a therapist who's a trained professional, particularly if you can find a trained professional in trauma and or sexual abuse, because they can really help you work through a lot of things. But it, it can be hard. It's gotten better over time because we've gotten so many resources made available to us online that weren't ever there before. When I started... Right there really wasn't anything. And I was like lost trying to scram around and figure out how to find things. What questions should I ask? Where should I go? And so that's really one of the reasons I wrote my book was to be able to help people understand here's where you can start and here's the questions you ask and here's where you can go to look. And sometimes you don't know, well, is this the place to go? Is this a legitimate place? Um, Do I trust the people I'm going to connect with here? And there's a lot of fear of of being subjected to re-traumatization or being a victim in other ways. And so it's just being really careful and exploring and finding uh, the right places for people. And you, you can do that through your therapist. You can do that through my book and other resources and just slowly build up sort of a list of places that and, and environments that are safe for you to engage with. Now you write that you did both individual and group therapy. Why did you choose to do both? And tell us your thoughts on finding a therapist for survivors. So I started with the individual therapy because I really felt that I needed sort of that one-on-one secure trust environment with someone that could help me with my individual issues and and be the focus of their efforts and kind of keep things private. I needed that space and that environment to feel like I could be fully open and 
be able to work with someone who would be kind of directing me on how to move through things. But the group environments turned out to be very helpful as well because those were, were less directed. They were more freeform and, and sharing and learning from other survivors. What were their experiences? How did they start their healing journey? How did they deal with situations when things came up? And so the, the group therapy was absolutely amazing because it was the first time I really talked to a bunch of women and then in the survivors of incest anonymous men who had gone through what I had gone through. Not every therapist is necessarily going to have that experience, even if they're trained. So being with people who have shared your experience can validate you, can help you find ways to become more resilient and see them on their healing journey. It's inspiring yeah. to be around people like that. So I think it's really great to have opportunities to do both. Um, it is challenging sometimes to find a therapist that you connect with. It took me a couple of tries to find that therapist at the school. So don't be afraid if, if the first go around, it just doesn't seem to be a match, you know, you can try again. But uh, I think it's a little easier these days because there's the teletherapy, online therapy, that there's a lot of different platforms people can connect with. So even if you're in a place that has limited number of therapists in your area, there's an opportunity to find an expert online that can work with you. That's a good point. You indicated in your book, uh, you practice yoga and meditation to help you heal. How did they help you and complement each other and any precautions on using different meditation techniques? Sure. So those two practices were absolutely critical for me. So I kind of stumbled into yoga uh, because ironically, my husband and I were thinking about starting a family and I learned that yoga is great when you're pregnant. So being the type A person I was, I'm like, let me join yoga before. So I wasn't even thinking of it as a, as a practice for healing for my abuse. But when I started going, it was really challenging because all of a sudden I was being asked for the first time to be present in my body. And I had learned as a child during the abuse to dissociate, to escape my body. Yeah. And I actually did that for all the times I was abused. And that just became my normal pattern of how I related to my body. And I actually felt my body had betrayed me. I, I learned to hate it because I didn't like what was happening to me. And I thought I was the reason it was happening. And so I just developed this really bad relationship with my body, either ignoring it or pushing it too hard or just treating it like a machine and not respecting it. And so when I stumbled into yoga, at first it was a little scary because there were poses I felt so exposed in certain poses. It was like, mm. and I didn't want to stop because I, I, felt somehow it was going to be helpful in general. And so I talked to the teacher that I had, he happened to be a male, which was kind of challenging. I said, okay, this is what's going on. And as the statistics you quoted at the beginning of the show would indicate his sister happened to have been abused. So he totally understood. Yeah. Told me, yeah. okay, we're not going to have you do those poses. We'll give you something else. I won't do the, the normal adjustment that we do uh, on you for the yoga, the normal healthy way of dealing with students. I won't do that. And he really created an environment of trust. And so I learned how to do the poses and eventually could do all the different poses. But for me, it was coming home to my body for the first time, being present, learning how to be in my body, learning how to be comfortable and to actually start to care about my body. And appreciate that I could be strong and flexible and eventually come to like my body and even love it. So that yeah. transition was really incredible to help me in that space. Now, the meditation was a compliment, as you said, to that practice, because 
even though I had done the individual and group therapy, even though I had been doing yoga for quite a while, I still had a lot of thoughts of shame and blame going on in my head. And I actually had some of the, you know, my, my grandfather's voice in my head telling me that I was a, a worthless, loveless kind of person. I had evolved to be a perfectionist to kind of try to balance or counter all of the negativity that I thought if I could be a perfectionist, it would stop the abuse and everything would be great. Well, of course, that was a setup that I did to myself because yeah. no one's ever going to be perfect. Right. So here I am with these two voices in my head and, and all this negativity living in the past all the time or being fearful of the, the future I might not be able to protect myself in. And so meditation was a way just to be present, focus on the breath and let go of those two voices and really start to hear my true authentic voice again, which I had lost and to learn to be quiet and to feel safe being still and quiet. And so it was, it was very helpful. But to your point, I, I mentioned in yoga, there were some poses that were a little scary at first. With right. meditation, everybody experiences this, whether you're a survivor or not. When you sit down to meditate, you say, okay, I'm going to be quiet. My brain's going to be quiet. And as soon as you try to do that, you suddenly notice how crazy active your brain is, right? So that happens to everyone. But survivors often have a lot more going on that they have been trying not to pay attention to. And now all of a sudden it really comes out. So there is a new, newer set of practices, um, both within the space of yoga and meditation that are trauma-informed. So trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive yoga and the same for meditation so that they're developing specific practices and training teachers to know how to deal with uh, people of trauma of all kinds and then adjusting the practices of yoga and the practices of meditation to help make sure people aren't triggered and it's a safe space. How did uh, creative arts help you in the healing journey? I was always a creative kid. I really enjoyed writing fun little poems and stories when I was a little and drawing. And I sort of lost, lost that a little bit when I was going through the abuse. I, I did keep writing and response to assignments at school but I think when I started my healing journey, there was this need in me to, to express again, like I did as a kid before the abuse kind of took over. And I just started exploring all kinds of different types of art. And I landed in photography. My dad gave me his old camera and I landed on photography. And photography for me, made, again, it was about being present. You have to be present to be looking for the, the next photograph and to focus on the camera. And it really helped me slow down and tap into that creativity that I mean, all of us have that creative spark in us. And I wanted to explore that again, because that helped me almost learn to be playful and connect with that younger part of myself that had been sort of pushed aside because she was the abused child and I had lost my childhood. So being in creative arts, I could express, I could be playful, I could be childlike and curious again. So it was really reversing a lot of that uh, negativity that got yeah. piled on top of that little girl and just having fun, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. just that's having a, fun. That's a good thing. What, what, were, what were the best practices you found to help you heal? And are there any practices uh, to avoid? So I, I think we've touched on several, the yoga, the meditation, the creative arts. 
Um, I, actually, for me, also being out in nature, I found to be incredibly healing. They're learning more and more when they do studies about how impactful being out in nature can be to helping with your stress and all kinds of other things. And that turned out to be very powerful. And of course, having a camera and doing photography got me out in nature. It was kind of a win-win. Um, but I also did, you know, walking meditation and other forms of meditation. And then I like to try to find ways to give back. I think that my worldview was determined by my abuse. I, I learned that the world is not a safe place, that people who care about you can hurt you and people who care about you about you take things from you, right? And so to counter that, I wanted to move into a space and create a space for myself where I was willing to give and be present. So whether that was doing uh, service at my church or giving money to organizations I felt were worthy. I mean, it was stepping out into that space to say, I'm gonna create a worldview of my own that says it's, it's a giving place rather than a taking place. So those are some of the things that really were working for me as well. Um, things to avoid. I guess I just, I, I didn't really spend a lot of time dwelling in those places. I mean, most of the stuff I stumbled into really worked for me and I was able to incorporate it. Um, so I don't have any red alarms to share with people to say what to avoid. I think each person has to kind of figure that out on their own. And that's yeah. what my book's about is helping you figure out what works for you. Um, Cause something that might be that didn't work for me might be the best thing for another person to try. And so right. I think it's each healing journey is very individual and people other than starting with the therapist, I think there's a lot of things people sh could explore music and all dance, all kinds of things that you could do. Um, but there's a balance, right? You don't want to get into something that's not healthy and, and supportive for you, but at the same time, you don't want to just, take a couple steps into it and stop. So you have to really weigh, do I have I given it enough time and enough effort to see if it's going to actually work for me? And then if the answer is no, don't have any guilt or shame about saying, oh, that's just not for me. Okay, let me see if there's something else to be supportive. Right. Just start uh, moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Your book, Thriving After Sexual Abuse, uh, is a gift to anyone healing from the devastation of childhood abuse. What made you uh, decide to write the book? Well, I actually started uh, the initial kernel of this book back when I was doing yoga, that which was sort of my first practice that I got into to start my healing journey. And when I would start doing yoga, I just kind of cracked open and started writing poetry about the abuse. And at the time, my husband was trying to encourage me to share it because he said, this could really help people. It's your story. It shows what you've gone through from the initial abuse all the way through your healing that you're doing. And I just... I just felt no one would be interested in reading poems about abuse. <laughs> and how do you get that published, right? Back then, that was very hard to do. So yeah. I kind of put that aside. And the other thing that kept me from writing initially was I felt like I would have to write a memoir and I'd have to remember all of these things and be able to say what was happening in my life and how it fit in. And as a trauma survivor, as often happens, the abuse was separate from the timeline of your regular life. And it was hard to find any way to integrate that. And in fact, I've had problems just forming memories in general. And that's just something common to trauma survivors. So I had a few poems. I didn't have enough to really make a memoir out of it. So I, I just kept doing my healing journey. And finally, what happened was there was the 
revelation that Dr. Larry Nessar was, had been abusing gymnasts, hundreds of gymnasts for years. Oh yeah, that was big news. It was devastating to me to think that one person could have impacted all these young girls and women. And it just cracked me open. And I thought, you know, I may not have a memoir to write, but I can write a book on healing. I can share what I went through, share my story, but more importantly, share the things that I did to help people. And I was just motivated thinking, I need to write a book for people like these gymnasts and I think I can help. And it's what kept me going when it got really hard to write the book. It was just that thought, this could be of help, could be a benefit to, uh, to anybody that's gone through that, men or women, whatever age. And so that was my motivation that got me started writing and it kept me writing. And that was that big light bulb that went off in your head. Yeah. That, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. Were you, uh, I'm going to make this a two-part question. Were you afraid to get the book out into the public and how did you tell your family that you were publishing the book and what was their reaction? So there was some fear in writing the book because not so much that it would be revealing my story to people. I had told a few people over time, so it wasn't like a big dark secret. The people I had dated and, and good friends of mine knew. My family eventually I told so about the abuse. So important people in my life knew about the story by the time I started writing what I was afraid of with the book is that it wouldn't be any good, <laughs> that, that it would be helpful. You know, that was my goal. I wanted it to be helpful. And so rather than really being afraid of sharing my story, I was afraid it wouldn't be helpful or I would do a bad job of writing. And I actually kind of tested the waters a little bit for myself when the lockdown for COVID happened. Um, April came around, it was National Poetry Month, and I decided I'd sit down and write a poem a day in honor of National Poetry Month. And a lot of those poems were about my abuse. It just whatever came to mind. So I actually put together a, a little book of those poems and created an audible book off of that. And I self-published that and got that out there and, and shared about that. So that was kind of dipping my toe in the water. And then uh, through some connections, I was able to write some blogs on this Psychology Today website about being a survivor in COVID and healing practices. So again, I was stepping out and claiming my spot as a survivor, but from a perspective of of how people could learn from my experience and be supported. So those things were out there. And again, it was a little dipping, knowing I was writing this book, knowing the big reveal was coming. I was kind of preparing myself psychologically by sharing these things. And my sister knew I was writing the book. Obviously my husband did. I didn't tell my parents I was writing it because I didn't want them to be worried about it or or anything unless I was actually going to finish it. So I uh, wanted to go and visit them and tell them in person, but Four cancellations later during COVID, I decided to have a phone conversation with them. And I had shared my Psychology Today blogs and my mom had read them and she was really appreciative and supportive about that and even said, I learned something from your your blogs I'm going to use. So they knew that I was writing in the space of my story to help other people. And so when I went to them finally to tell them about the book, that's how I started. I was like, remember those blogs and how I'm trying to help people by written a book that's going to do that, but in a bigger way. And they were very, again, excited and supportive and yeah. proud that I'd be doing that. And yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yes. And, and I, they haven't read the book. I don't know that they, they need to read the book. They understand what it's about and are totally supportive of the idea that I'm transforming my experience to help other people. So 
um, it was a little scary to start posting on social media. Um, you know, I, the big, I think the most challenging one was actually posting on my high school uh, reunion Facebook site where all the kids I went to high school with were there. And I'm like, okay, it's going out there too. I'm going to, if I want to do this, I'm going to just, because again, part of it was I have nothing to be ashamed of. Right. This is what happened to me. And right. what I'm doing is try to transform that experience to help other people. And there's no shame in that. And I'm just going to share it with everyone. And I have gotten uh, no shameful responses from people. I've had a couple of survivors that were triggered by the content or the, the aspects of the book. And that's just to be expected. People are at different points in their life. Um, but otherwise, it's been really great to have the support of everyone. Now, you talk about forgiveness in your book. Please uh, explain to us your interpretation of what that means to you uh, concerning this situation. So it's probably a, a real hot word for people when they, they hear you say that, forgiveness. And for me, that has nothing to do with my grandfather, specifically. It is all about forgiving myself, forgiving myself for having had this experience happen to me, releasing the idea that I'm at fault, releasing the idea that I have any shame about it, and just forgiving that little girl that was in no way capable or able to get out of that situation or stop it from happening. So it's really about forgiving that little girl and the person I was, forgiving myself for whatever behaviors I developed that kept me going and helped me survive that situation that probably ended up not being very healthy in the long term. So there's a lot of forgiving a lot of different parts of myself, a lot of different stages of life, just to say, you did the best you could, given what was going on, you have a chance to purposefully change who you are, how you show up in the world, how you treat yourself and other people. So focus on that. Mm -hmm. And that's where the forgiveness came in. It's just totally directed towards myself. Gotcha. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you say? I would tell her just hang on. I know it's horribly tough right now and it hurts and it's just scary, but it's okay. Things are going to get better. You're going to really, really enjoy how things turn out and you're strong. You're going to make it through this and you're going to come out the other side and everything's going to be fine. So just imagine me being there with you, big hug, and just keep going. Uh, do you recommend keeping a journal during the healing process? I think it could be very helpful. I didn't specifically do that. I was doing my journaling through poetry rather than a more diary form, but it was very, very helpful for me just to get those emotions out. Sometimes it's hard to talk to other people because of, again, the fear and the shame. And a journal is a wonderful thing because you can just write anything that you are thinking or feeling without any fear of other people's judgment. You don't have to share it with anyone. So you can really just be as vulnerable as you need to. And I think it helps to, to start pulling all of that out and, and getting that out of your system so that you can make space for new things to be there. Um, and that's kind of what in my book I'm asking people to do is to get a journal so that as they go through the book and they see the questions I'm asking them to think about that they can be journaling on it. And I think it's helpful in the moment as you're going through your journaling, through your healing journey, but also when you're at a point where you feel kind of stuck and you're not sure you're getting anywhere, it's great to look back 
at what you've written in the past so you can reference say, oh my gosh, look how I handled those situations in the past and look how much healthier I'm now, more resilient. So it's a great healing tool, but it's also a great reference to keep you motivated and continuing on your journey. What would you say to a person that was sexually abused and has not come forward and addressed it and is still compartmentalizing it? And we know there's probably a lot of people out there like that. Yeah, I, I know that it's very hard to think about, to, to deal with, but it's keeping you from living your full life that you want to live. And it's going to get harder before it gets better but it's worth all the work. You are worth the work that you need to do to heal from this because you don't need to stay in the pain and the suffering and the, the disjointed way of living that you have now. It, it can be so much better. And to have the, the recognition of the strength that you have inside, it got you to this point. It helped you survive. Let's use that strength to focus on the future and moving forward so that you can get to a place where you really are joyful and enjoy who you are. Good point. What takeaway message do you have for our listeners concerning child sexual abuse survivors? So I think there are people who are not themselves survivors. It's important that they understand when someone comes to them and shares their story, they're not looking to you to validate their story. They don't need you to validate what's happened, their, their experience. They right. want you to listen, to hear them, and to let them know you believe in them and let them know that you're there to help them any way that you can and let them decide what help they need. I think that I was very fortunate with my husband that he didn't try to jump in and try to tell me how to heal or what to do or how to do it. He was just there to support whatever way I was finding that was working for me. and. I think that that's why having a therapist is great. It's a neutral person to talk to, but just be there to listen, be there to encourage them as much as you can to, to get help of whatever kind is gonna work for them and just be there to support them along the way because it's gonna be a hard journey. And if you can just be a friend and to listen and support them and help them however they reach out to you for help, that's what they need. They don't need you to fix them. They don't need you to, um, figure out a way to get back at the abuser. You know, they just need your support to say, I hear you, I see you, I believe you. What do you need so that we can help get you further along? Now, this book is the ultimate starting point for people beginning their healing journey and should be on everyone's list, including mental health professionals, supporters, loved ones, partners of survivors. This book that you wrote will demonstrate they are not alone and will empower them along the way. This book is an excellent resource for non-survivors to educate themselves on the subject, especially if they have a survivor in the household or know a survivor and can give non-survivors a concept of understanding the subject. Where can people get the book? So my book's available across all the major book sellers. So Amazon, and Barnes and Noble and Apple, Google Play. So you can find it pretty much anywhere. It's uh, available as a paperback and also available as an ebook or Kindle. So you can get the paperback or electronic version of that. If you're curious to learn more about me, more about the book and to uh, learn about the healing library that I reference in the book and that sort of thing, I have a website 
So it's thrivingaftersexualabusebook.com. And uh, all the links that I mentioned for the major booksellers are there on that website. And then you can find me on Facebook, Thriving After Sexual Abuse, and then on Twitter, Am Thriving After. And you can just keep up with me as I post about all kinds of healing things and, and encouraging survivors in their journey. Well, I will provide that information in the podcast notes and on my website. It's a wrap with wrap.com. I applaud your courage and your bravery to come out of, of the dark shadows and shine a spotlight on this problem. Your book is an excellent resource for people going through this and needing guidance. I would hope the word spreads about the book and it gets in the hands of everyone that needs it. You are an excellent advocate and I wish you all the best going forward. Comments and suggestions to improve the podcast are welcome. Our website is it's a wrap with rap.com. We're on Facebook, it's a wrap with rap. You can email us, it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. Thanks everyone for listening. Please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.